John, the beloved apostle, had the privilege of recording some of Jesus' most amazing and astounding statements in the Scripture. John is the one that recorded, before Abraham was, I am. He recorded this statement, John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. He recorded this one, he who has seen me has seen the Father, speaking of the true identity of this person, this human man God, God man, Jesus. He also recorded, I will come again and receive you to myself. Amen. I love that one. He's coming back. And then Revelation 22, same writer wrote, I am coming quickly or suddenly. And then finally, he says, John 6, 47, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. How many of you believe in Jesus this morning? Amen. I'm a believer. I'm a truster. I put it all on him. Well, every single one of those statements is a goldmine of theological truth and is absolutely necessary for us to understand just who Jesus Christ really is. However, in the passage that we're going to read today, there's a statement that is made by the Lord Jesus himself that just may be the single greatest thing he ever uttered. I know that is a big statement to say, but truthfully, everything else he said either stands or falls on the truth of the statement that he's going to make in verse number 30. We read it last week at the end of the sermon. This week, we're going to read it at the end of this week's sermon. And it's so important because all of the Old Testament prophets, all of the Old Testament, according to Jesus himself in Luke chapter 21 and 22, all of them pointed to him and to what he was about to do. You say, well, what is the statement? It's this statement, it is finished. What power, what incredible weight those words have. And I believe no single statement carries more meaning or has more consequence than that word to telestai. And it means it is finished. Pastor Matt wonderfully helped us understand what that word meant last week. It is the idea of accomplishment. It was accomplished. What was planned was brought to pass. And at the time of the writing, the word to telestai was a common word. And when he said it, everybody knew what he was saying. It wasn't like he was saying something people had to go get a dictionary and find out what he was. Oh, no, no. It was a common word to telestai. A servant would use this word when a task had been completed. A priest would use this word when a sacrificial animal was found to be totally worthy of sacrifice. A farmer would use the word when, used, uh, when he found a perfect specimen had been born into the flock. An artist would use the word when the final touches had been applied to his masterpiece. And this was God's masterpiece that happened on the cross. I just want you to know that. It was a merchant's word used when a deal had been struck and all the haggling had ended. Its usage meant both parties were satisfied and the debt was paid. I believe these are the greatest words Jesus Christ ever spoke. You say, well, why, why, why would you say that? Well, because the pain of redemption was finished. Oh, there was tremendous pain physically and spiritually and emotionally and every other way in this crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. 
for the first time separated from his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The pain of all of the, uh, of what was going on and the pain of looking at those he had healed and those from whom he had cast out demons and for all the service that he'd given to so many people and feeding and to hear the very same people stand and say, crucify him, that pain, that, that angst. Well, the pain of redemption was finished. And then something else, the plan of redemption was finished. Well, you see, it started in Genesis 3.15 and following. That's, that's where the plan started. It started in the heart of God before the foundation of the world and his foreknowledge, knowing the sin and choice of man in the garden and all the way down through history, he had a plan in place. Do you know, you can never surprise our God. And he was ready, and it was a plan, and he put it in progress. And he said that there's coming a time when you will, you will bruise the heel of, of the Son of God, but he will crush your head. The plan of redemption was finished. And then finally, the payment of redemption was finished. It is finished. It is accomplished. The satisfaction of a debt has occurred. The, 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 the complete and full payment has been made. Jesus paid for the sin of mankind for all time. You know, when you and I die, when Jesus died on the cross, you and I had not even been born yet. And so it wasn't for sins up to a certain date that Jesus died on the cross. Sin died for the fact of our sinful, our sinful incapacity and that we are, have the propensity for sin. He died for, our, for the fact that we are born in sin and that we practice sin in our life. He died for all of our sins. Now think for a moment. Think for a moment of that worst moment in your life that you don't want us to show up on the screen this morning if we had that capacity. And then think about every other moment in your life that maybe don't measure up to the worst moment. Now put them all together, whether they're past, present, and even in the future, Jesus died for all sin, for all man, for all time. Jesus died for our sins. You see, it is finished. He accomplished it. He satisfied the just demands of the Father. But now he's dead. The light of the universe has gone out. The prince of life has died. The uncaused cause has been broken. So what of his death? What now? Well, folks, I want to tell you, I praise the Lord that we do not proclaim a partial gospel at Grace Church. We do not believe that Jesus died as a victim, but as a victor. We do not believe the cross was a cruel end to an exemplary life, rather the climax to the drama of the ages. There is a cross behind me uh, there in the baptistry, and you will see that that cross is empty. It is not a crucifix. Never call that a crucifix. That's not a crucifix. That's a cross. A crucifix still has a dead man hanging on it. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus isn't still hanging on the cross. He's alive, and he is in the presence of the Father. It is a simple cross showing that the Savior who hung there is absent. You know why that cross is hanging up there? It's hanging up there to remind us of the price he paid and also the fact that he left it. He died and he went to the grave and he rose again. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus returned to his glory at the right hand of his father. Now we're coming to the resurrection event next week in the series. But today, 
I don't want to jump, skip, or otherwise ignore this passage of Scripture. And the truth is, is that this event, this being dead from the time of the cross to the time of the resurrection, this event is spoken of in all the Gospels. It's, it's, it's immensely important, but we're so anxious to get to the resurrection. And of course we are. But there's, there's something going on here. He was, he's dead at this moment. He's dead. We don't want to miss it. Let's stand to our feet. And let's read the passage of Scripture beginning in John chapter 19 and verse uh, number 30. And we're going to read down through 42. In fact, I will read verse 30 down through verse 37, and you will join me on verse 38. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for, the, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has, has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And another Scripture says that they should look on him whom they pierced. Now join me. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission so that he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby." Father, add your blessing to the preaching and teaching of your word. Illuminate our hearts and minds to understand the scriptures. And I pray for those that are believers here today to imagine and to, to, to enter into this passage of scripture in an inductive way, Lord. Just let's participate in this and understand as we observe the death and the entombment of our Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that you would help us. And then if there's one here today, Father that does not know you as personal Savior. I pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be very strong in their life, and I pray that he would draw them to himself and to the Word and to salvation. May today be the day that they are born again into the family of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The elements of his entombment are these. Jesus, or the Jewish religious leaders, were there. Verse 31. 
And here they are again. The extent of their legalism and hypocrisy doesn't seem to know any bounds. They are the ones who Jesus said would fast just to be seen of men. These are the ones who give offerings in such a way that they want to be recognized for what they give. These are the ones who would pray long and loud in the open to be seen as super holy and special. And here they are with the idea of rule keeping. They're worried about breaking the rules of the Sabbath, which began at sundown. Now, this was a special or high Sabbath in the sense that at least by this meaning, knowing that the Passover was also coinciding with the Sabbath on this occasion made this an extra, extra special day. So they were worried about breaking Sabbath rules. That is, no corpse being left on a cross. That's the Deuteronomy 21 passage we've we've referred to less the ground be cursed. Now, the hypocrisy of this group knows no end. They conspired to murder Jesus, but let's not contaminate the area by leaving these dead bodies on the cross. So they went to see Pilate again, and they asked that Jesus and the others' legs be broken uh, to ensure rapid death so that they could get them off of these crosses and into some burial. The Jews were very particular and meticulous about burial. The Romans just threw them out into the Valley of Kidron. They just threw them out and let the ravens and the birds and the scavengers eat them. That would have been good enough for them, and often that would have been the case, but not the Jews. They wanted to make sure that there were a burial, you see, meticulous in their watching and keeping of the law. Crucifixion was a lingering death sometimes, taking days, and burial was not a concern to the Romans. It was for the Jews, and so thus the breaking of the legs. Let's break these legs so that they can die. They didn't have to break Jesus' legs. The soldiers now are another consideration of this passage, verse 32 to 34. They came and broke the legs of the man on the left and the right, but when they came to Jesus, he appeared to be dead already. They did not break his legs, but one of them made sure of his death by forcing a javelin or a spear up into his side, into his heart. Now, the Bible says that out came blood and water. Blood, of course, you would expect to come out, but water? Perhaps the pericardium sac around the heart had filled with water from the congestive heart situation that would have, would have been forced on him due to all of the stress and all of the punishment that he had taken. Or perhaps his heart just exploded from the trauma and mixed with the fluids. The issue was this, is that he was certainly dead. Now, I want you to take that from this point. They thrust a spear into his side. Evidently, these crosses were not as we picture them way up there in the sky, but rather more toward ground level to the point that a man could have taken a spear from ground level and just rammed it up through under the ribs into the heart and out came blood and water. It certainly would have ensured that the man was dead. So here's what I want you to take away from this. Jesus died. Do you understand that? He died. There's all kinds of all kinds of uh, conspiracies and stories out there that he just swooned, that he didn't really die, that he was buried, but he wasn't really dead, and that in the coolness of the tomb that he woke up, and then he moved the stone away in his condition. But in any, in any event, but they, 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 they say all kinds of things. But the whole point is, Jesus was dead, blood and water. We don't understand it completely. Was it blood to atone for our guilt and water to cleanse us from sin? Was it blood that justified and water to sanctify it? We sing it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
Television and Hollywood cannot get enough of mocking Christianity and especially this old song. I can't tell you how many Westerns it seems that they always sing Rock of Ages, cleft for me. How many of you have seen those old Westerns and they always seem to make fun of that song? Listen to the words that Augustus Toplady wrote, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Listen to these words, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure save from wrath and make me pure take take away my sin and wash up my life blood and water there may be more involved there but i'll leave it at that then there was something else that was so important in the passage the scriptures you know the scriptures cannot be broken One prophecy, one declaration, one idiosyncrasy, one discrepancy in all of the Bibles that cannot be explained and the whole thing collapses. The scriptures, it says not one of his bones would be broken. This is what the Bible says in Exodus 12, 46, Numbers 9, 12, Psalm 34, 20. And they shall look on him whom they have Pierced, there would be a piercing. Psalm 22, 16, Zechariah 12, 10, and 13, 6, and again in Revelation 1, 7. Folks, the prophecies concerning Jesus' birth, life, miracles, death, burial, and resurrection all had to be fulfilled or else the scriptures would have been broken. But all was fulfilled. Aren't you glad that God takes care of the details? Amen. He takes care of it. You know, there's all kinds of details that have to do with our resurrection and reconstruction and reconstitution of our bodies that I do not understand, but God does. Is there anything God doesn't understand? Is there any eventuality that he's not in control of? Is there anything happening on this planet that he's not aware of? Is there anything happening in your life that he's not aware of? No. All was fulfilled. He's the God of the details. And then There was the witness. Look at verse number 35. I love this. And he who has seen and testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. We have a witness. Way back in chapter 1, we had a witness. His name was John the Baptist. We got two Johns in John that give witness. And the first one was John the Baptist in chapter 1. He was a witness, and he testified of what he saw. And he gave testimony of the dove that came down and lighted on the one who was to be the Christ, and he baptized him. So he gave witness. Here, the apostle John, or John the Beloved, he saw, and he testified, and he said, I saw it. And I'm telling you the truth. I saw and heard the mock trial. I saw the whipping. I saw the crucifixion. I saw and heard him breathe his last. I saw the soldier with a spear that jabbed him in the side. I'm telling you, he was dead. This is John. He's a witness. Nothing like a firsthand witness. He's not an expert witness. He's a material witness. He was standing there. And he's given us what he saw, the scriptures, the witness. Now the converts, <laughs> I love this, verse 38 to 42. You know, the, the Bible, the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ is effective. Amen. It is powerful. The word of God. Uh, we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God and the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we got these two Jews. 38 to 42, we read it a moment ago. It's the only place we meet Joseph. At this point in the narrative, he shows up at this spot in all four gospels. Joseph, 
He is Joseph of Arimathea. Nobody can find that spot. We find this. We find that he was a rich man, Matthew 27, 57. We find that he was a prominent member of that Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, Mark 15, 43. He was a good and righteous man who did not consent to what the council was doing. That was Luke 23, 50 to 51. He was a member of the believing minority. So are we, members of the believing minority. You know we're not in the majority. Are you aware that most people do not know Jesus? How many of you are aware that most people do not know Jesus? You you say, that's a sad state of affairs. It is a sad state of affairs, but it's also a wonderful mission field. We got to look at it that way. Uh, We are a member of the believing minority of Jews who were praying for the Messiah to come, Mark 15, 43. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ, John 19, 38. And it was he who asked for the body of Jesus And with his friend, Nicodemus gave the Savior a decent burial. Now, at some point, Joseph had this tomb prepared in a garden. Uh, Matthew said it was for for himself and for his own family. Uh, And so there was a garden. It must have been more like a farm than just a simple garden because we read a little more and we find out that it had a keeper or a caretaker. It was big enough to have a caretaker that that was his dedicated task. And so we asked the question, was this tomb that he dug, was it for his family? Or perhaps was it just God and his sovereignty had him get a tomb ready? He didn't know what for. Well, John, the apostle usually frowned on silent disciples, but perhaps if Joseph had revealed himself too soon to the Sanhedrin, he would have been thrown out. As it was, as it was, he was able to have inside information about what they were doing and what they were up to and what the schemes were. I put it this way. He was one of God's secret agents that was on the inside and he knew what was going on. Nicodemus now, we know him a little better. Verse 39 says, Nicodemus at first came to Jesus at night so as not to be seen and not reveal himself. But here, he steps right into the light. In fact, most of the times you read about Nicodemus in the scripture, it says, he who came to Jesus at night. So when he first came, he was silent about it. He may have been believing. At some point, he did believe, but he remained silent for fear of the Jews. And so he was silent. But I just want to make a statement here this morning. Uh, You know, the silent witness is all right for a while, but at some point in life, you're going to be called on by the Lord Jesus to step forward into the light and identify yourself as a true follower of the Lord Jesus. Now, let's just stop and run ourselves a little survey in our hearts. Do the people where you work know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Now, you don't have to answer out loud. Ask, ask, Ask and answer yourself. Do your neighbors know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you stepped into the light? Boy, if we can't step into the light in the United States of America, then we're never going to do it on some foreign field where they cut your head off for it. Do your, do your other family members know that you're truly a follower of the Lord Jesus? Well, Nicodemus finally came to the place where enough was enough, and he stood up, and he was counted, and he said, look, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm with him, and we're going to take that body and bury it. Now, Pilate had just condemned the man to death. Are these people going to defend this quote unquote criminal? Are they going to associate and identify with him? They said, yes. Joseph went and identified himself with Jesus as did Nicodemus. And so sooner or later, folks, believers step into the light. Sooner or later, we step into the light and we give the light. Now then there's this last event, the entombment. Joseph, this rich man, properly employed his influence. He properly employed his wealth. 
he provided a new tomb for Jesus, close by the hill of Calvary. It mentioned it in the passage we read and in other passages that it was close. It was right there. I just can't imagine this, but imagine going to visit your family cemetery next to the moaning and groaning of people who are hanging in crucifixion. Just think about that. Wow. Well, the truth is the Romans probably took possession of this hill for their purposes of crucifixion after that place had already been a garden for many years. Note that even in his associations and his burial uh, were prophesied. Everything about Jesus, both his crucifixion and his burial were prophesied. Isaiah 53, 9 said they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, he's buried in a rich man's tomb. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Now, the Bible says it was the ninth hour, that is three o'clock in the afternoon. He had to be in the grave before the Sabbath began, which would roughly have been sundown or about six o'clock. So the men had to hurry. Joseph did the legal stuff with Pilate and craved the body and asked for it. Nicodemus secured the spices. And it's interesting how much the New King James says a uh, hundred pounds. The NASB and others say 75 pounds, but that's a whole lot of spices to use. In fact, it qualifies with the amount of spices that were used for kings of that day to be buried. <laughs> Just one more indication of who Jesus was. He might have had a criminal's crucifixion, but he had a king's burial. Amen. And so Second Chronicles 16, 14 talks about that and what was used. They, they used myrrh and aloes that were mentioned earlier in the scriptures when the wise men showed up bringing these kind of spices, speaking of, his, of what was going to happen to him in the end. Uh, the may, perhaps they brought these spices and they used them to make the linen strip stick to cover the, and to cover the stench. But that's what they did. And there was a great amount of, this, of these spices. But they weren't done with it. They were hurrying because the women, uh, they bought more spices and they were coming back the first of the week to finish the proper burial on Sunday morning. That's Mark 16, 1, Luke 23, 56. And so, folks, nobody had ever been laid in that tomb before. This is a very significant point. It's a brand new tomb. Nobody ever been in there. No more bodies in there. And that is very significant. So when they, when they came on that Sunday morning, bright in the morning, and when they came and found that tomb empty, there was no doubt who was missing. It wasn't one of the bodies. It was the one and only body that had ever been in that tomb. Hallelujah. Jesus rose from the dead. So listen to it now. The tomb, that tomb, that day under those circumstances was by divine design. And it was a borrowed tomb. Imagine that, borrowing a tomb. Imagine, imagine now you have uh, the need of the services of a funeral home and the mortuary and things like that. And you go down to them and you go in and look at all the caskets and you say to them, I just need to borrow one of these caskets for a little while. We're not going to need it long. <laughs> Borrowed tomb. Wow. Beautiful. So those are the facts of the death and the entombment of Jesus. And I could say much more, but the fulfillment of prophecy, the piercing of the side, the wrapping of the corpse and the burial in a sealed tomb, the verification of the deceased person, all these things point to one particular thing. Jesus was dead. Dead. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to die for our sin. You know, either you are going to die for your sin or Jesus, if you trust him, can take your place and die for your sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died. He was dead. He was dead and he was buried. He was sealed. 
He was entombed. He was wrapped in linens. They put the spike. They did everything that you do. That was after he had been jabbed with a spear to ensure that he was dead. He was dead. This is huge. He was a real man. He was dead. He was not living. He had been sacrificed or had better yet made himself a sacrifice. I'm taking time to focus on this because no matter how much we want to move on to the resurrection, his death is an essential part of the gospel. Folks, no death, no gospel. No death, no salvation. Uh, you, do not, you do not become a believer because you believe in the goodness and the wonderful teachings of Jesus Christ. No, no, no. It's not enough to believe he was a wonderful itinerant teacher who, who, who died an untimely death at the hands of wicked people and you just put all your faith in his teaching. No, no, no. You've got to believe in the message of the gospel. That is that he came, he was innocent, he was condemned, he died, he died, he died, he died, and he was buried and he rose again to the glory of God and for the salvation of our souls and to pay our debt. He died. He's dead. No death, no gospel. No death, no salvation. Now in my musing and con contemplation about this as I thought about it, I was led to a single verse of scripture that I want to end with this morning very quickly. In fact, if you missed or were bored by everything I said up to this point, if you'll tune in now, you will be blessed and it may make the difference in eternity for you. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, it says clearly, Peter the apostle who also witnessed all of this tells us clearly what this death and burial are all about. He said, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive by the Spirit. To make sure you get this. And there's just four little quick points that I want you to write down in a hurry. And the first one is Christ died. That's what this verse says. Christ Jesus died. He didn't swoon. He didn't fake it. It was not some, as the docetists say, and some of these other dualists try to say, it. Oh, no, no, it was just a, it was an, it was an imagery thing. It wasn't really there because, you know, the body is terrible and worthless and bodies are not important. And he's, God certainly wouldn't resurrect the body because bodies are evil and spirits are good. Oh, that's all kinds of nuts. Jesus had a body and he died and they buried him. That's what this verse says. He died. The second thing it says is Christ died once. One time. <laughs> he said, how, how come that? Is that really significant? Oh, you better believe. How many times do you want to die? <laughs> he died one time. Now watch Romans 6.10. For the death that he died, he died once to sin for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Hebrews 10.12. This man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? He sat down because he, he was finished, you see. He said, it is finished to telestai. And, for, and then Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's beautiful. One offering guaranteed our perfection, guaranteed our acceptance before the Father and put us in the process of sanctification so that we can begin to live a holy life. He did it by one offering. So Jesus paid the debt for sin for all men for all time. Now, folks, why is this so important? Because if you could lose the salvation of God, you could never receive it again because Jesus is not going to die again. One offering for sin for all time. 
Christ died once. Number three, Christ died for us. The just for the unjust. First John 3, 5, and you know that he was manifest to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. What? The innocent man was crucified for me? I'm guilty, not him. He died, not me. What a miscarriage of justice. No, it was the perfect awarding of justice by the innocent for the guilty. You see, Christ paid a debt he did not owe. And I owed a debt I could not pay. I can hear, I can hear Dr. Laurent in a Bible class that I used to go to. And about once a week, we would come in and sit in this Bible class, New Testament survey. And he would say, all right, boys, it's time to sing it again. Christ paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I'm singing this new song, Amazing Grace, cause Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. We sang that a thousand times. I'm here to tell you something. He died. <laughs> he died for us, the just for the unjust, to pay your sin debt, to set you free, to take away all curse, to take away the condemnation, to take away the chance that you could be separated from him for all of eternity. He paid your debt. Why? Christ died to bring us to God. Hey, look, you don't go storm the gates of heaven and walk in and say, I want to come. Mm -mm. You got no permission to just say, I just want to go to heaven. I'm, I'm going to do anything it takes. I mean, nobody's going to keep me out. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. You, I'm going to do it on my own. No, you're not. Christ died to bring us to God. Imagine trying to get in to see the president without somebody taking you into his presence by beating your way through all of the defenses that he has. Well, that's the president. He's nothing compared to God. Now, listen to me. Christ paid a debt and he paid it in order that he could bring us to God. No man comes to the Father except by me, Jesus said. You don't barge into heaven. You don't make demands of the gatekeeper and declare your rights to be received. No, we have to be brought to God. And Jesus brings people to God. And for many years, I've been trying to bring people to Jesus so that Jesus can bring people to God. I'm trying again this morning. Won't you come to Jesus, undeserving, sinful, yet repenting and say, Jesus, I believe you died for me. And that you can bring me to God. I believe. And how about you, believer? How about you? Is salvation merely a ticket to heaven? Is salvation not a fellowship and a relationship in gratitude for his death in our place? Is your Christianity a heavenly Santa Claus where you just get stuff you want and need? Or is this a relationship with the one who bled and died for you? Dear believer, listen to the admonition of the Apostle Paul. When he says that his love compels us, he says we need to understand this, that he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. He died for all that they should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again.
Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and ask yourself a question? Am I the chief end of all of my efforts? Am I personally the chief end of all of my love and affection? Am I the chief end of all the purposes that I have in my life for my advancement, my enrichment, my blessing, my encouragement? Or have I understood that Jesus died to bring me to God and have I understood that those that he has brought to himself should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. Jesus died for you. Is there somebody that would say, Pastor Phil, I hear that, I know that, and I need to receive him today. I want him to save me from my sin. I've never believed truly, but today I want to believe. If you're hearing like that, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Today I want to believe. I want to believe. Looks like a whole congregation of those that already know that Jesus died for them and they've come to him for salvation. I ask you to do a little survey in your heart. Is Jesus and the Father the chief end of my affection, the chief end of my desires, the chief end of my life? Is he the reason for me to live or am I in that place? So with the music playing and in a moment of silence, would you talk to the Lord for a moment right there where you are and just say, thank you for dying for me, bringing me to God, and Lord Jesus, help me not lose focus about what my life is about. Help me live for you who died for me. Dear Father, there's a lot more could be said and a lot more application could be made, but it's enough. Draw us close. It's Christmas. And you came, but you didn't come to tinsel and lights and garland and the singing of joy to the world. Not in the sense we do. You came with your heart and mind set like a flint on Jerusalem, on Calvary, to die for our sins. Thank you, Jesus. Help me, help us, help all of us get our lives oriented toward the gospel truth of your death. Help us today now to joy in our salvation, to rejoice in our freedom to rejoice in debts canceled and to rejoice in our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.